Welcome to the Asia edition of Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech podcast. I'm Rachel Williamson. And I'm Karis Palmer. Every fortnight, we dissect the successes and failures of financial innovators and bring you the people at the top of their field working to disrupt banking. From traditional banks doing things differently to startups navigating the unforgiving world of financial services, I'm Simon Spencer, and this is Breaking Banks Asia. Welcome to Breaking Banks Asia. I'm your host, Rachel Williamson, and today we're talking about Australia's digital ID bill. It's a piece of legislation that is an important step towards data regulations in that country. And to discuss this issue, I'd like to welcome Connect ID's Andrew Black and payments expert David Marsh. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for having us. Now, in brief, the Digital ID Bill wants to fix issues around privacy and security of personal information and to make it easier to use an Australian digital ID for government services, essentially to be able to use an existing MyGov ID for more things. Now, a parliamentary committee is due to report back on this next round of submissions in February, but the minister in charge, Katie Gallagher, has consistently said it's not a new ID and not a national ID which is important as Australians have long distrusted the idea of an overarching ID system. David, I'm going to be a bit nitpicky about some language here. Will this create a digital identity or is it actually a way to prove that you have been identified? And if it's the latter, why is that important? Sure. So it's really about sharing information to confirm that you are who you claim to be. Um, So it doesn't create a new identity as such, um, but there are a number of scenarios right now where you might use a driver's license or some personal documentation to to present to a um, what would be called a, a relying party, but it might be a merchant, um, to, to basically verify some information about you. So it's really about... Um, trying to digitize that process and make it safer and apply to uh, against privacy principles around data minimization. And why is it important that it's not creating a new digital identity or a new identity per se? So people already have lots of digital identities today. You've probably got a whole host of different logins for different systems. And that proliferation of information is, is all over the internet. So we don't really want to add to that what we're looking to do is basically allow people to use um, identity that they already have and be able to minimize their digital footprint on the internet. Andrew, what I've been reading about the digital ID is that it's a really important step towards data regulations. Do you think that Australia could finally be moving towards a more uniform regulatory model for open banking and open data and a digital ID? I think where the bill is really important is pushing us further towards a more trusted digital economy at whole to allow businesses to sort of move away from, hey, I can get a 100-point check in the traditional way we've done it for goodness knows how long, or have a reusable digital identity. And that's the intent, right? So it sort of improves productivity, improves and makes things easier for businesses to onboard customers, but reduces the amount of data they have to store. So it reduces that risk. And sort of overarching thing we've been doing for the last few years of just over-collecting personal data. I'm really interested in how this ties in with the open banking framework that is already existing in Australia but has yet to really fly. Do you know how this is going to work in with that? Because, I mean, 
that seems like a really good way of doing all of these things on the private sector side. And I know that the private sector is pretty keen to jump in on the digital ID earlier than the government is comfortable letting them. Well, I'll probably just call it the private sector already doing things, right? So Connect ID is a, is a great example, which is from the MD of. Um, we're the digital identity exchange. So we're already operational, already live with Commonwealth Bank and National Australia Bank as, as trusted providers. So you can already reuse now your banking identity to verify and sign up for goods or services. What the bill will look to do is create that ability to exchange data between the public and the private sectors. Now it's set out in phases at the moment, which is sort of what we're looking at when that will be. But private sector is already doing this and already solving for it. Um, with regards to, to CDR, and, and, and David may touch more on the payment side, but the, the opportunity is a little different, um, in, in my opinion. This is about minimizing the amount of data that we share. So CDR, the default is, hey, let me collect seven years worth of transaction history with digital identity. It's about just getting the minimum amount and moving more to what we call sort of attestations or zero knowledge proofs. So instead of you actually needing my date of birth for anything, just a tick to say, yes, Andrew is over 18 or confirming an address or confirming an identity rather than having to share the underlying document, you know, and, and sort of painful process people go through today of having to share the driving license to prove they're over 18, right? There's all that extra data. So there's there's some parallels, but actually the sort of intent is a little bit differently. Um, now, I'm sure with the regulation as a bill as it goes through, they'll be looking at how can we look to align things like accreditations or you know security assessments and standards to make sure businesses are going through things once and not duplicating process, especially those in financial services. Um, but we do need to be conscious the intent's slightly different. Yeah, the use cases that were proposed for CDR, for open banking in Australia, a couple of years ago were very similar to the what you were actually um, saying. Um, David, one of the key reasons for bringing this legislation in is the rising vulnerability that transacting online is creating for consumers when it comes to their data. But there's some confusion on how it might work to fix this vulnerability. In your opinion, how will the digital ID, as currently proposed, work to make payments, because it's it's broadly speaking around payments, isn't it, and transacting, more secure? And can it? Yeah. So if you look at um, Australia at the moment in payments and some of the challenges around fraud and scams, increasingly consumers are becoming the weak spot in the chain. So uh, traditionally, people was very, very fraud focused and criminals would try and get your credit card details. Uh, as systems have started to close out the opportunity for criminals to take advantage of that, the problem has shifted a little bit towards scams. Now, if you watch the news, turn on the news, almost any night it feels there's a new story around a cybersecurity incident that there's been personal details compromised, passports, Medicare. Uh, there's been a series of those and they've been consistent. What that means is all those documents are now out there on the dark web for criminals to try and access, and they can use those to try and open bank accounts or buy now pay later services in people's names. And people don't know that's happened until... They get approached about a, a debt that they have. And so if you can use digital identity to minimize the number of scanned documents that are compromised that are on the internet, 
then that really closes down the opportunities for people to open those accounts that, that are ultimately the end point in uh, romance scams or investment scams. Because I guess part of the challenge with the, um, with the financial system is that for a criminal, you have to be identified to be able to open those accounts. And so if you can reduce the number of compromised documents, then ultimately that will make it more difficult for people to open the accounts that the fraudulent funds end up in. Surely a digital ID or at least um, an ID that can prove that you have your identity has been verified can also be stolen in some way. Yep. So uh, I guess Andrew touched on this uh, idea of accreditation and making sure that the, the participants in the scheme or the framework have all reached a certain level of quality in terms of uh, their ability to do things like uh, user management around encrypting data, around uh, around what would essentially be considered good governance. And if you think about that, and there are a lot of correlations between the way that the financial system operates today and the way that I envisage that the digital identity system will operate in the future. Um, if you look, for example, um, with the card scheme, then you have merchants and you have acquirers, and they're basically in a almost a I guess a secure bubble, if you like, that that they're, they're trusted parties uh, in that na- in that network, and ultimately the digital identity scheme would would reflect that in some way that the people that are operating there would be trusted because they've been through through some form of accreditation or certification, and therefore it reduces access to to, to criminals to be able to get into that that framework. So it's not an unlockable box, but a bit more secure than putting your driver's license all over the internet. <laughs> but, but look, if you, uh, as a consumer, if you've ever found yourself using uh, uh, any sort of service, uh, whether it's purchasing goods online that are age restricted or whether it's uh, registering a domain name or there, there are lots of scenarios, travel insurance, hiring a car, there are lots of scenarios where post-pandemic, the uh, user journey has been digitized, which is awesome up until it comes an identity step. That's the weak spot in the chain here. If you ever find yourself emailing your identity documents, then you know, you, the, you're at risk of being compromised. So it's much safer than, than that. I've got to say, when I need to find those documents, my email is <laughs> the first place I go to because they're all lost in there somewhere. <laughs> Andrew, you're about, to, um, you're about to comment on that. Well, just, yeah, probably just to add a little bit, right? So what the digital identity and what digital identities do as well is also give users more transparency about where they've used it, right? So when we're building with our partners and the the banks and other trusted providers, there's a consent dashboard and a consent history of where you've chosen to use it. And the consent is really key, right? So as David said, you're choosing where to use it. I'm choosing where to use my ComBank ID or, for example, my Gov ID in the future of where I've used that, but there's a record, right? So you don't have that when you're, or maybe you do buried in your emails, but you don't have that when you're just scanning documents and instead of filing cabinet somewhere of well, what did I use to sign up for this, that, and when, there's that kind of clear record of, you know, okay, that was shared these data points, these attributes on this date with my express consent sort of thing as well. So that that level of comfort, I think, from our sort of consumer research is, is really powerful. Now, Andrew, I mentioned before that Australians have a tendency to put on their tinfoil hats whenever national IDs are mentioned. There is some rest- some resistance from industry um, around restrictions on biometric data that are encompassed within the bill, like fingerprints or iris scans, um, the likes of 
Bixi Lab are saying they want to have access to that data to test their algorithms for bias, that sort of thing. Is that a good enough reason to not put the current level of protections around biometric data, especially given Australians are already prepared to distrust these sorts of systems? Yeah, it's a really important point. And there's a couple of things with the with the bill, but also the way the the ecosystems coming together that help consumers, I think, sort of understand that this is about choice. I think this is not about creating a central database or a central honeypot where all these biometric data points are sitting, where um, you know, there's an overstorage about keeping them in safe places they are today, highly regulated and accredited safe places, but also mm-hmm. voluntary. Right, this is voluntary. Um, there's no mandatory use of digital ID. Uh, so there's strict prohibitions against that in the bill, as well as in things like Connect ID and our scheme rules. You know, you have to be able to provide non-digital uses or abilities to have customers use your goods and services. So I think where the perhaps some of the reservations around Australia card and those sort of myths come is actually thinking about this is about government just setting up one big database and one big silo. And it's not that. It's a choice of trusted providers distributed to provide more safety and it being completely voluntary. Thank you so much, Andrew. We're going to stop for a short break. At Breaking Banks Asia, we cover the inside stories, the emerging themes and the exciting people participating in Asia's banking and fintech sectors. If you want to reach our dedicated and growing audience, which includes listeners from government regulators to people at the top of Asia's fintech and banking companies, reach out to Breaking Banks Asia on LinkedIn or go to www.provoke.fm. And we're back with Andrew from Connect ID and payments expert David. The draft legislation for Australia's digital ID bans the collection of sensitive data such as race or sexuality. Now, this seems sensible to me. It is just an identity verification tool and not a profile. But, and Andrew, you'll be familiar with this because you are connected with the peak body for payments, Australian Payments Plus. One of their submissions uh, says that they would like to be able to collect this sort of data, at least racial data, to do things like a proof of Aboriginality. Now, this seems to me like a bit of overreach for what it is. Andrew, could you explain for me why the payments industry is advocating for this sort of carve-out and what would be the use case, particularly given the way First Nations people have been treated in Australia and the way they continue to be treated and the distrust that they are going to have about an identity document or an identity verification tool which will include a carve-out for Indigenous status for them and not, say, other Australians. Yeah, so a really important distinction is we're certainly not advocating for collection, right? We, um, and Australian Payments Plus has connected as one of its products alongside FPOS, BPAY, and MBP. We've been running sort of critical national payment infrastructure for the last 30, 40 years, and those sort of domestic sets of scheme rules and across the economy always look at inclusivity. For us, our recommendation, which is publicly available, is not considering a blanket ban, 
is allowing individual choice to share that. And there's loads of use cases today, right, where um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and Indigenous communities have to share something about themselves or be able to prove their Aboriginality to access different goods or services or part of employment. But that's choice and it's user consent. We're in no way suggesting you should change the way those tests are, are completed today. That's tried and tested. It's making sure that we design something that's inclusive rather than excluding it as a blanket ban. Um, and what we're asking and recommending as part of this consultation period is just a review on that and thinking about those are restricted and sensitive attributes, but it's the individual's opportunity and choice really to be able to share and consent. That. Um, it's certainly not a mandate to collect or store or widespread discriminate in any way, shape or form. We actually see it as the opposite. It will enhance inclusion. Thank you. Yeah, it's a difficult topic, that one. Uh, thinking about digital IDs more broadly, you've got Adha and India, um, that's a standout in regional digital IDs, and a number of other countries around the region. Indonesia, obviously, they've got Privy ID coming in to Australia as well, uh, and a number of other countries in the region are bringing this sort of tool in. One of my uh, favourite recent examples is an outfit called Worldcoin, which is paying people with a with its own cryptocurrency to create a blockchain-based biometric identity, which I don't fully understand the use case for yet, but no doubt they'll come up with one. So it's clearly a big opportunity for companies as well. David, what I'd like to know is how important is standardisation and actually being part of a system for digital IDs. You know, the likes of Privy ID has been welcomed in. Connect ID, obviously, you're very closely aligned with the industry here. Um, then they've got the likes of Worldcoin, which is just setting something up in the ether in the hopes perhaps that it's useful somewhere. How important is it to be in the system in order to make yeah. these things actually useful? So um, there's, a, there's a few things there, I guess. Uh, there are lots of different types of identity solution. Um, and I think when you look across those, a key thing that I keep coming back to is that you need to take society on the journey. And and one of the key things um, that's important around when I look at Connect ID, for example, is it's a very simple concept for the everyday person to understand that your bank can essentially vouch for you. And that, that's something quite simple when you compare that to if you try and explain other identity services and you start talking about cryptographic key pairs and things, the average person on the street isn't going to understand that. And um, so, so there's there's one element which is simplicity is important. The other piece that's important is around interoperability. Um, and so, you know, there are lots of digital identity solutions out there today. If you think about a company that's consuming identity, um, let's pretend you're running some sort of store and you, you decide that you're going to roll out an identity solution that isn't interoperable and you issue that to get all your consumers to get on board, all your customers, sorry, to, to, to get on board. And then for one one day, for some reason, you decide that you're going to change identity provider and you essentially need to go out to all those customers and try and get them to switch identity provider. Um, interoperability is really important because it, it it resolves that problem. If you can get a whole bunch of identity services that all work and a standardized um, service, as, as Andrew had mentioned, then even if one merchant or relying party, depending on which terminology you want to use, switches identity providers, then um, then they don't have that issue. People can still use whatever identity solution they've chosen to to use. And then you broaden that out to, to a global perspective. Obviously, in the perfect world, internationally um all identity solutions 
would be interoperable. Um, that's, I, I think, probably a very long way away, considering you know many countries haven't even started on that journey yet. But it's a it's a noble thing to to to, to point towards, and you know a, a north star to head towards. What's interesting is each different country you've got different um, different regulation in terms of things like privacy. So there's going to be some uh, differentiation there. Um, and so that's always going to complicate things a little bit. And then uh, you have different rules around uh, data sovereignty and things like that, which is going to complicate things. Um, but but really, if we can get to a standard that is interoperable, that is that is fantastic. Uh, and what is positive about um, what I'm seeing in Australia, and we've talked about open banking a little bit as well, is the underlying technology that underpins a lot of these solutions is uh, OpenID Connect and OAuth, which is a, an underlying technology, which is a global technology. So it's not backing into a corner. Uh, one thing that I've learned from being in the payments industry for so long is that Australia tends to take a bit of a second mover advantage on a lot of things. You can see with consumer data, right? We've seen what works, we've seen what doesn't work. Um, and now there's trying to shape regulation that basically positions us best for interoperability, but also for innovation and privacy as well. What scope do you think there is for multiple players in this space versus, say, one or two dominant ones? Because once I get a digital ID with one outfit, I'm probably not going to get any more if I, unless I absolutely have to. So trust is key. Trust is absolutely key. So uh, I guess the the banking industry in Australia has, uh, I guess, weathered a bit of a storm over the last 10 years. But I, generally, I think people still trust their banks and they keep their money safe. Um, and by, I guess, as part of that, they also need to keep their information safe as well. And so I guess consumers could still choose to have multiple banks and they could still choose to have multiple identity solutions as well. Where this will head ultimately will be a competitive market. And uh, I think that, you know, having uh, banks as a, as a starting point is awesome, but there's nothing to say that in the future you might choose the, your telco's identity solution provider or uh, any, any other business, for example. Competitive how? Because with banks, the reason why you'd have more than one bank is because they're offering you something. Whereas a digital ID uh, provider, what are they going to offer you in order to have more than one? Andrew, that might be one for you. Might, yeah, so I, I, might, I might jump in there. So I, I think it's around the customer experience, right? So the reason you use different um, apps in general, different services in general, is sometimes customer experience. There's a trust, as, as David said, is that sort of first hierarchy of needs. So do I trust them to look after my identity? And in some scenarios, I might feel more comfortable using my banking ID. Maybe that's through setting up more bank financial services or taking out insurance or verifying something. And maybe as a consumer, I feel more comfortable using my state-based identity for education or something more um, state-based. So it's choice. And one of the more important things as part of this is that if you're a provider and you lose trust, you're able to move. And that's where the voluntary piece comes in is mandatory. You're not forced to use a MyGov ID, for example, over and over again. Um, and that's where we differentiate from some of those global markets, having one government-issued identity, having the ability, um, even if you only want one, but the ability to have another is a fundamental difference. And I think that's where um, Australians will, will embrace this more and having that ability to choose and also keep providers on their toes, right? Last question for both of you. David, earlier you mentioned how digital IDs are going to enable this 
digital future for us. And I'd love for you both to have a think about what that digital future looks like for for you. How is it going to fundamentally change our behavior and the way we live online, the way we live in the real world? Look, I might take a, a swing at that for sort of what I think about all day, every day at the moment. For me, it means never having to take out a passport or driving license again, right? And have it photocopied, have it uploaded, take photos of it. Some of the customers we're working with at the moment are around rental and real estate. And that's an example of an industry that um, you know has huge opportunities there about digitizing those processes. And it's not just the pain as a consumer, right? Where you're just constantly hunting for those documents and then taking photos of it. But for businesses, it's got to store it. And the security... Uh, controls around that, the cost to store that, the cost to ensure that data, the cost to then delete it afterwards is ever increasing. So for me, it's thinking about the opportunities to take what was an analog process where you take a piece of paper, a piece of plastic to prove something about yourself, which we digitized and just take photos of now generally, to fully digitize that, right? And that's where we think we see the most benefits for for businesses and for the economy, but also for consumers and for everyday Australians, just being able to verify something about themselves, not share the whole amount of information and just say, yes, I am Andrew, I am 18. You don't need to know any more than that. David, what's your blue sky? Yeah, for me, um, so a similar theme, I guess, for consumers, it's about convenience, right? I mean, at Endeavor, we, we spend our lives basically trying to deliver a seamless customer experience and customer journeys. And so if you can digitize that, um, whilst everyone has a, a different perspective on things like use of cash, for example, if you look, generally the population is is moving towards mobile payments. And yeah, identity is very similar in that, in that, you know, if you have a seamless customer experience that uses digital identity as part of a flow and you can access the service very quickly without having to scan in documents, um, that would be awesome. That makes it a, a really nice flow. And the flip side of that for the businesses that are currently holding lots of data today, I mean, I would hope that every large corporate would have cybersecurity on their risk register today. Um, and whilst no one wants a data compromise, um, I think that uh, if in the unfortunate situation that you found yourself there, if the criminals basically had access to a bunch of flags that said an assertion happened, no other information, that is a much better story than having access to a whole bunch of passports or Medicare card uh, details. And so I think there's benefits on both sides, If, if um, particularly if we can get interoperable digital identity that's ubiquitous. Um, that, you know, that's an awesome space to be in. What was once seemed very futuristic seems very possible now. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Great. Thank you. And thank you to our audience for listening in. I'm Rachel Williamson, and you've been listening to Breaking Banks Asia. If you enjoyed today's episode of Breaking Banks Asia, don't forget to share it on Twitter, leave us a five-star review on iTunes, or wherever you listen to our show. This helps us build our audience and support our sponsors so we can continue to bring you a great show every fortnight.